All right, well, welcome everybody to another episode of Mentally Unscripted, your number one podcast to find the signal in a sea of noise. Uh, this is Paul, and as always, I'm here with Scott. Welcome, Scott. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Just uh, ready to help carry people out of the world of ignorance and into the world of enlightenment. I, I love that, and I will, I will try not to get in the way, okay, <laughs> if, you're, if you're okay with that. Uh, um, you'll probably have to prop me up a, a few times through this journey. Right. Yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, you know, Scott and I were talking offline about different topics we'd like to cover. There's, there's uh, so much that we could be discussing, but well, one of the topics that resonated with both of us was the idea of big change. And uh, what that change is, is um, and, and so we're going to hear, as we're heading into 2021, we expect that you're going to hear a lot about change that needs to happen um, from our political leaders. And um, as you're hearing that information, what kind of questions do you, do you ask? How do you uh, think about evaluating the narratives that are being shared with you? And, and then coming to a conclusion and maybe we even, you know, talk a little bit about how do you communicate with others who are going to be telling you this narrative is the number one reason that we have to make change when, uh, as you see it, it's, uh, it's just not the case. So um, the, the narrative that seems to be kind of top of mind is the Green New Deal. Uh, so this uh, and, and we're not we're not going to talk about every single specific detail on the Green New Deal, because, first of all, it's not really um, a policy yet that's been. Uh, put forth uh, through uh, the policymakers, right? At this point, it's kind of a high-level view of needing to address climate change. Um, and climate change being um, anthropogenic change caused by humans. We're putting too much carbon into the atmosphere. Um, and therefore, in order to combat that, we have to create new fuel sources and also change other, other habits. And uh, my understanding of the Green New Deal is that there is a large push for us to endorse uh, alternative forms of energy, which in this case are considered solar and wind, uh, with the with the plan to reduce any kind of carbon-related uh, energy. So, you know, very simply, fuel, uh, you know, gasoline that we put into our cars. Um, you know, I, I, it's unclear to me where exactly natural gas would sit with that, um, and. And then there, as part of this, uh, which I find very odd, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that, there doesn't seem to be a very large emphasis on nuclear power. Uh, so as we're talking about green energy, a lot of it is just it goes back to um, really solar and wind. So I guess Scott, to, to start off the conversation, you know, when you hear these these big calls for change, uh, the last one that comes to mind uh, was in 2008 was going to be we, we needed Obamacare, we needed an overhaul of our, of our medical system. Um, I think, you know, during the last administration, there was this idea that, you know, America first, we had, to, we had to engage differently with the world. And now we're going to be hearing about the Green New Deal, how we need to address climate change. So when you hear these big sweeping narratives, what's your first thought? How do you, how do you start to think about what's being said? Yeah, I you know, my first thought when I hear about these things is, um, what's the end goal, and is this something that we really need, um, and how, if we do need it, how quickly do we need it? Um, so, you know, for example, like the Green New Deal, right? We're hearing, uh, I think AOC said, like, you know, we were gonna all be dead in a, a fiery ball of ash in twelve years or something like that. Um, so like the question comes up is like, okay, <laughs> you know, and again, I'm not a climate scientist, so I'm just, uh, I'm just trying to come at this from kind of a purely, um, more like critical thinking angle. I'm not really trying mm -hmm. to pass judgment on any of this stuff, but the first right. thing I thought is, okay, now I mean, what's the evidence that this is true? Um, how much do I think that AOC really believes this? Um, and how much of it is, um, puffery, uh, or posturing, mm -hmm. um, panic, um, just to try to get people to pay attention. And I think, did she not even recently, like within the last year, come out and say, like, you know, nobody really believes the 12-year thing, right? It was just kind of a... a, a <laughs> it's possible. She's, yeah. yeah, she said quite a bit. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, so that, so that, you know, and it leads to the question is like, okay, now, what is this climate change thing, right? What, what are we trying to achieve here? What is the end goal, right? Um, what do we need to do? Um, 
can we even do anything about it? That's that's another question that I don't hear a lot of people really answering. Um, mm-hmm. I know I hear a debate over whether the climate change is um, it's a result of human activity or is it a result of um, just the natural cycles of the earth? Um, mm-hmm. and, and here, you know, this is it, the best way to look at it is, is, is it's not a zero or one binary thing, right? You have to kind of look at it on a kind of a probabilistic standpoint, right? It could be, it's probably part of both, right? We do know that the earth goes through these climate cycles, but we do also know that human activity is putting these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So what, what right. percentage of it is human? What percentage of it is just the normal cycles of the earth? Um, and then kind of once we figure that out, then we can kind of start to ask the questions of, okay, number one, how bad is it really? Is this something we need to address? What's the best way to address it? And the big thing, um, well, two big things here. It's probably not going to shock anyone to hear this. Incentives matter, right? <laughs> this is, as we go through these podcasts, I'm becoming more and more convinced that that is probably the core mental model to always keep in mind is that there's incentives yeah. to play. Um, so when someone like AOC or some of these um, clean energy companies are really pushing this narrative, right? Ask yourself kind of what the incentive is, right? Um, you know, yeah. is AOC, does she really believe this? Is she just trying to get attention? Is she trying to get support um, uh, to uh, uh, from her constituents? Um, that sort of thing. Um, and yeah. who's she getting money from? And again, I'm not questioning her motives. I don't know. She could be very sincere in all of this. Um, but it's a question that you need to ask. Um, and yeah. the second thing is we haven't mentioned it yet, but there's this idea of second order thinking. Um, and essentially what second order thinking is, is it's going, it's going past that superficial level of thinking to start asking the what ifs, start trying to analyze unintended consequences and externalities and trade-offs. So, you know, first order thinking would be the simple, uh, climate change is bad. We have to do something about it and government needs to lead the way, right? That's, that's the quick, easy solution. And, you know, most people probably aren't going to argue with that, but second order thinking is like, okay, now if we start implementing this program, what's going to happen, right? What's it going to do to the cost Mm -hmm. of energy? Um, what's it going to do to, um, to uh, poor people who maybe can't afford, um, these new fancy electric cars who can't afford, you know, all these, these more high efficiency appliances and things like that, you know, what's it going to do to them? Um, and how many, how many externalities is the government going to create by trying to force these solutions into place, um, before the market is really ready to implement them itself. Um, so, uh, Paul, what do you think, uh, is there anything I missed there? No, you know, as you're talking, what came to mind is, is I guess the first question you should be asking is, is the, the premise that's driving the narrative. Uh, in this case, it's that uh, we are, as humans, having an adverse impact on the environment, which at some point in the future could cause us to go extinct, and that we have the capability to change that, right? So that's, that's the very first premise. Um, and, and it's also a little bit localized because they're saying as, as Americans, right, because that's where the policy is going to be set. Now, we, you hear about the Paris Climate, uh, climate Accord, uh, which, again, I'm not an expert on everything that's in that accord at all. Uh, but it, it's more of a, um, you know, a, a agreement across governments to try and reduce carbon levels. So, yes, then we, we start going from what our country can do versus what those countries can do. Uh, so you have to first, you first ask the question, do I, do I believe that that premise has enough weight to it that if I'm, we're going to be making massive, drastic changes, um, that it's, it's sufficiently sound? So I think that the models that you're asking, I think, um, are, are correct. What incentives? First of all, is it, is this something that we can empirically test? And, and I think what you're going to find in a lot of these changes, um, when someone's proposing something massive, we're, we're looking at complex systems. Uh, and, and the way I describe the complex system, my thinking of it is that, you know, two plus two equals five, which I think right now is a terrible meme to say, you know, um, uh, we don't believe in science. Uh, that, that's, 
so so maybe the two plus two five is not the example I'd want to use today, but it's you have emergent properties of systems where you have um, an unmeasurable number of, of variables that come into play and create outputs that you can't quite model effectively. And that by zeroing in on specific variables, you're able to identify what you believe to be the primary driver, when in fact it could be a secondary or tertiary driver, and is not going to give you the output that you want. So in this case, you say, well, we're going to change all of our um, all of our inputs for our energy. Uh, the complex system says, okay, great, then you're going to get this clean energy on the back end with clean uh, clean air. Uh, however, I didn't account for these other variables that are in place that um, are, don't allow me to actually hit my output or, or my, my desired goal. And um, so, so to bring that back, kind of, you have to you have this premise that people are asking you to believe, um, and they they end up making it rather simplistic, uh, typically, uh, because. Um, it's, it's easier as a narrative to kind of push forward a simplistic narrative rather than a complex one. It's, it's part of the human psychology. We, we enjoy stories, and stories that are memorable are typically simple. And, and so if you've got a narrative that's overly complex that, allows, that, that requires you to think and be analytical, it just isn't going to have the same traction. Um, so, but if you, if you have a narrative and it's telling you that you have to buy a simplistic story for a complex system, it's, it's usually a, a red herring or, or kind of a, a red asterisk that says, you know, ask them, are they, are they really telling you everything? And so you have the incentive aspect of it. You have the, the, the second order thinking. The second order thinking oftentimes is, is don't tell me about the benefits of which maybe you haven't I documented all the benefits. So maybe there's other benefits of solar and wind. So a good example may be energy security. Um, if we have grids that allow us to be fully independent of energy from any other country, does that does that then allow us not to be entangled in military operations that uh, we feel obliged to be uh, a part of? Does that allow us to to have more independent thought and 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 uh, as a country, right? So that, that could be that could be an offset a, a benefit. Um, of course, the 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 other side of second order thinking is typically asking for the costs that are not usually provided at the beginning so um, people that promote big change typically want to highlight the benefits and want to minimize the cost and so um, they they when in doing so you should be asking yourself well you know what cost haven't they talked about and have they really gone into the cost um, you know if I think through this last campaign cycle Andrew Yang talking about universal basic income, which again is another big idea. The idea that automation is taking out jobs. We need a new way to, in order to subsidize living in the country um, as people um, are out of work and they cannot find work with their, with their skill level. Uh, and so when I, when I hear people discussing UBI, I find that it doesn't have a, a level of rigor around the, the cost of it. And I don't even mean the financial cost because Andrew Yang, who was the, the primary person pushing the idea had a model but what he seemed to um, well, I never saw people push on him well, what are the costs emotionally what are the costs structurally to a society that has this over a sustained period of time and, and part of this is just running mental experiments in your head right you, you get different you get a get a, a psychologist and a sociologist and an economist and a mathematician um, a physicist put them in a room and run scenarios and say, okay, what would your field look like in 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Um, and, and what are, what are you know, if, if we have UBI or, and, and, and it changes, it grows, it shrinks, well, asking those types of questions is where people start to uh, doubt some of the big, the big stories that are being told. Now, climate change, um, I, I, I've come to really dislike it because it's become so divisive. Uh, people either you believe 100% that humans are the cause for everything on, on the planet and therefore we can change it or you are skeptical about some of the activities that are that are um, and, and, and the incentive structures and so if you're skeptical about the incentive structures and some of the narrative you you and myself I, I kind of put myself in that camp I'm gonna struggle with someone telling me well we have to make all these changes and there has to be sacrifices that people are gonna make and that's just part of the grand bargain that we have to uh, we have to make in order to achieve this this grand vision. So, 
kind of to, to bring it back, I think you're right. I think incentives matter. I think second order thinking matters. I would add, first you have to ask the question, do you understand the premise? Maybe you don't. Maybe, maybe you really don't understand exactly what is driving it and you should go back and understand it and then, and, and study it and then ask yourselves, um, are, 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 is there a narrative here that is being simplified for traction, but minimizes the, the types of things It minimizes the incentives that, that we're being, uh, we're looking at. It minimizes the, the second order impacts, both positive and negative, routinely negative because that doesn't, doesn't support the story. Um, I guess specific to this one, uh, nuclear or ra- rather the Green New Deal. And we, and we, again, neither one of us are client scientists. I'm not, I'm not suggesting at all that humans aren't impacting the environment or that we shouldn't be making changes uh, or thinking about how we uh, work within the environment because I, I actually do. I, I have a fairly strong view on, on how to, to go about doing that. Um, but I guess specific to the Green New Deal, you talk a lot about incentives. We know as it's discussed, not really as the policy, but a lot of it is on solar and wind um, as, as green technologies that we need to adopt. When you hear that, what, what are your thoughts there, given you know, what we understand about adoption in the country today? Yeah, I mean, when I hear about solar and wind, the first thing I think of is do we have the technology to replace all of our energy usage with solar and wind? Um, Mm -hmm. One of the things I hear about as being, two things that I hear about as being a big issue with that is storage of the energy for when the wind's not blowing and when the sun's not up, and then transportation of the energy. Um, I guess um, my understanding is as you try to transmit electricity over long distances, like it loses some of its power. so if you've, you know, you've got a, a, a solar farm in Arizona, right? Are you going to really be able to ship that energy to Montana on a cloudy day or something like that? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you know, so my first question is, where do we stand on the technology? Where do we stand on the cost, right? How much is it going to cost us to uh, get all these houses and buildings outfitted um, for this energy? Uh, how, are, how are we going to do that? What are we going to do? What about fail-safes, right? What if something happens and the solar farm in Arizona gets taken offline, right? Are we going to have some backup somewhere? Like, how's mm-hmm. all that going to work? Right. Um, right. Those are those are some more practical examples. Um, and then when I hear kind of on a higher level when we talk about incentives, one thing I hear is, you know, how much of this is being driven by the solar and wind industry? How much mm-hmm. of it is being driven by the researchers who were competing for grant money from the government to research this stuff. Um, I think we talked about during the COVID vaccine episode, um, you know, these folks, these think tanks and these researchers, right, they have an incentive to kind of drive the the panic level on this stuff because the more they can be in the news, the more the government can justify giving them money for research. And let's face it, right, there's only a limited number of dollars for research. So like we mentioned, I think, you know, COVID, right, the virus researchers, they're kind of maybe, you know, they have an incentive to kind of push the panic, uh, the panic button a little to try to get money for their research. So in the environment, I think it's the same thing. Uh, And then also, you know, the idea when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. (laughs) If you live your life in this silo of constantly researching energy issues and climate change, right, you're going to, over time, right, you're going to start equating everything. You're going to start looking at everything through that lens, and you're going to think it's the most important mm-hmm. thing in the world, and you're not going to keep things properly in perspective. Um, right. So that's another problem. So, you know, so in your mind, you may, you may legitimately think that what you're working on demands all of these resources, when the reality is, if you're looking at it from a, a, a more eagle-eyed level, the resources that you're demanding go into your research may be better spent putting into cancer research or something like that. Right. Um, you know, so, and this gets us into the idea of like trade-offs, right? Um, yeah. If, if the money's going into climate change research, right, where are we missing it somewhere else? Right? right. Which I think brings us back to kind of our initial point, like, like you mentioned, like you have to lay that foundation, right? You have to understand, are you asking the right question, right? Is this thing, 
really the most critical thing at this point in time, or is there something else? Um, are the politicians pushing this because it is a, you know, it's something that gets a lot of attention, or yeah. is it truly, you know, as critical? Um, and you know, and this is where, especially with something like climate change and the environment, right? Like, like we've met it, right? We're we're not experts in this stuff, so nope. we have to we have to voluntarily outsource some of our thinking and reasoning to mm-hmm. experts on this. Um, so, but then you run into the problem of like, well, which experts are you going to listen to, right? How much mm-hmm. credibility do these experts have? Um, how much time and resources do I have on my own to devote into researching this stuff so I can come up with an informed opinion? And, yeah. Yeah. And this is where kind of making that jump from first order thinking, like we're talking about second order thinking becomes difficult. It's like, mm-hmm. how much, how much do we want to rely on the authorities? And again, you know, that brings us back to the incentives question, right? What are the incentives of these authorities? And Paul, I think you mentioned, you brought up a good point too. It's like, again, these are complex systems. So for, in order for the layperson to understand it, we sometimes have to simplify these things down. Um, it, it, but um, was it Einstein said, like, make things as simple as possible, but no simpler or something like that, <laughs> yeah. right? You know, yes, yeah. Or, or we mentioned before, like, the map is not the territory, right? Mm-hmm. There's a, you reach a point where you make it too simple. It becomes so simple that the solution is right there staring you in the face, but that's really not the best solution. Um, yeah. Because you're not taking into account all of the nuance involved in the decision. And, um, you know, something something like climate change, right? We, we, we kind of have to accept that there's sort of this black box in there where, like you mentioned, the input in one side is all these, these new innovations and technologies and regulations. We have no idea what the, what's going on in the black box, but then coming out of the other side is supposed to be energy independence, cheaper, renewable energy, a cleaner environment, and things like that. And so we end up having to just take it on faith that what's happening in that black box is what we were promised would happen. Um, yeah. And, and that's that's kind of one of the worrisome things there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because like we've said before, right, you got a lot of money and power and influence and things like that that are also ingredients being sprinkled into that black box. Yeah. And, you know, something I, 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 I'm not sure if you mentioned it, but, but came to mind as you were speaking was the, the, the idea of the opportunity cost. Uh, and, and maybe that's where you were talking about uh, cancer research is, is, um, if we look at outcomes uh, as a country or the, the benefits of the country and what we, what we achieve, do we get more from investing in solar and wind, uh, to change our, our climate, or do we get more when we invested in other um, other pursuits, such as uh, understanding the human genome or uh, focusing on, on cancer? And uh, it's it's a good question. And, and in fact, you can even narrow it down just within the field of energy, where if we're not if we're investing all of the money into solar and wind, that means that we're not investing the infra- the money into infrastructure like nuclear power. Um, we're not investing into uh, other types of technologies that at one point may have shown promise. So I remember being, uh, I, I, I was actually very interested in solar and wind. And for me, it's, a, it's honestly always come down to energy independence. I was raised uh, overseas in, in uh, Saudi Arabia where my parents uh, worked for Saudi Aramco, the oil company. And being raised there, it, it was always in the back of my mind, what kind of engagement do we have in other parts of the world where we have reliance on, on oil? And how would that change if we didn't? And so it's, it's a question now. Um, you know, that's a, probably a topic for another day if we start talking about you know, the benefits uh, and, the, and the, the drawbacks of integrating with cultures and, and globally. There's a lot of great things. I would not change my experience. I, I wish everyone could have the experience I had in terms of meeting people from other cultures and, and learning about them and, and having a, a, a more nuanced perspective on it. Um, at least I, I find it to be a nuanced perspective on it. Uh, but to bring that back to specific energy, I've always been interested in, is there a way in which we have improved energy security? And I thought, well, that's because we, we have our own energy sources, right? So in 2008, during the first um, Obama administration, 
I read a lot about switchgrass. Uh, I was re- reading about green algae. I was reading about um, technologies that were trying to harness uh, wave uh, energy. There were a lot of really promising uh, technologies at the time. One of them was being able to cover every single building with a type of film that would allow it to, uh, just like a solar panel does today, to pick it, pick up the energy. And, but my excitement um, was deflated when we saw the results of those early experiments that were primarily uh, subsidized by the federal government. So you may recall Salandra, uh, that's talked about, I think, in Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, uh, about all of the different energy companies that were subsidized by the federal government uh, that we're going to be bringing us the brand new tech. Well, w- almost none of them survived. Tesla and, and the work that Elon Musk was doing actually was one of the ones to survive. And of course, Elon doesn't look like any of the other people that were taking money from the government. Doesn't wear a suit, doesn't have a tie. He's, he's a geek in a geek's clothes. And his job is about engineering. Well, if you took the other companies that were taking money from the government, you know, there were, there were old, old men, really, it was mostly men, in, in suits and ties talking about a, a business deal. They didn't know about the engineering. They weren't talking about the, the changes in the technology. So what you saw was that the United States government invested a bunch of money that taxpayers never got back, no return on investment. Um, and and I, since that time, I've read more about solar and wind and experiments that have, that have taken place in other parts of the world. And I've grown to become more, more skeptical of their ability to have the kind of output that we would need for a growing population, I mean, does anybody actually think that we're going to require less energy, not more, going forward? And I, I, I don't know of anybody who could argue, well, we're going to need less. Um, even as, as our computers and our microprocessors require less and less computing power, and they're being added to every single device and every single item we have in our home. So you have more and more devices that are coming online through things like, you know, Internet of Things and other types of technology advances. Um, they're not, and yeah, they may sip, but you've, you've gone through, you know, two or three people that are sipping on, you have you know, the, the gas-guzzling computer, which, you know, is, is doing a Slurpee. Now we've got a hundred little little processors that are sipping, you know, on their little espresso. You go, oh, well, that's better. Well, no, it's not. I mean, all those things require energy. Uh, and then you, you look at uh, in places like like Europe, where they've they've put in more uh, solar power, more wind power, to uh, you know, in, in England it's offshore. They've put in the turbines. Um, in uh, Germany, they've put out you know, a lot of subsidies to have uh, solar power uh, put on people's homes. But none of that's really materialized to change. In fact, if anything, from what I've read, is that the cost of energy has gone up in Europe, outside of France, which has um, still has core nuclear power. There's, there's a heavier reliance on uh, natural gas, which I don't think really fits the, the idea that people have of these renewable resources. And um, I mean, I, I ever even heard um, a story that the uh, Germany was having to destroy a forest so it could, it could go back to mining coal so they could have more leveling in their energy. So, you know, if you, if you think about considerations for energy, right, it has to be abundant and it has to be reliable. Those are at least two things that you're looking for because it's great to have energy, but if it's uh, you know a powerful energy source, but if it's only good on one day, then that's not good. Uh, then if you've got something that's that's available but only a 20% for for multiple days, that's also not good because the expectation is that the energy is always available, and you have both of those energy sources, wind and 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 solar, both have those issues. You've got cloudy days and you have days in which you don't have wind. Now, moving on to the battery. I read an article in Popular Mechanic four years ago about the challenges and why batteries have not progressed. Well, it's, it's what we would call a hard problem, right? So hard problems, so, you know, I, I heard this concept a while ago and people go, well, yeah, that seems kind of simple, but there's these really, really, really what we consider hard problems, physics problems, that we've spent a long time trying to crack the code, if you will, for a solution and we just can't seem to do it. You know, we've, we've put millions, maybe billions of dollars of research into it, and we just can't seem to crack it. And one of those is in battery storage. Um, the ability for them to have brand new technologies that can actually store energy for a lot longer period of time comes down to problems that exist at, at a physical level with how the chemicals operate. So 
without me being an engineer and understanding all of those elements, what I, what I take away from that is that there are certain hard problems that we are going to have to overcome in order for these technologies. So they have dependencies on a battery cycle that has been, that has not been solved, right? Going back to your question, what are, what are some of the other dependent technologies that we need? Can we actually even achieve what's being asked of us? Well, in this case, in batteries, even with the, all the work that's being done by p- companies like Tesla to build that next generation battery, it still doesn't exist. Um, and if it did, perhaps you would be able to solve some of the problems of, of carrying a battery, you know, charging on days in which you have light and then be able to, to give it and use it and distribute it um, on days in which you don't have sun or you don't have wind. But that hasn't been solved yet. So... As, as someone who's hearing this grand narrative, you're asking the question, well, what, what kind of dependencies exist here, right? And uh, what kind of opportunity costs are we, are, we, um, are we taking when we put all of our eggs into the basket of solar and wind uh, and we don't invest in other technologies? Now, I'm, I'm a big proponent of nuclear. Um, to me, that is the, the power. It's, it's, it's going to be exponential over time. It's, it's the only energy source that I understand that can be exponential over time. And as our growing needs expand, I can't imagine that we're going to be able to have um, uh, a more abundant energy. Um, and again, I'm not an engineer. I'm not an expert on nuclear power. I've read a decent amount about it. I think there's still challenges with it, um, you know, the waste being kind of the, the primary one. Um, but it, it's not discussed in my, my view enough. And that that kind of leads back into this idea. You're hearing a big narrative for a big change, but the, the, the primary technology, as I understand it, that could actually help us achieve the goal of clean energy, of, of abundant energy, is not there. Um, so I, I know I, I just put a bunch out there in terms of incentives, in terms of opportunity costs, uh, my limited understanding of the energy markets in different places. Um, I don't know. Any initial thoughts based on what I said, Scott? Yeah, um big things that I have written down here Um, just quickly not one that I necessarily think we need to really chase down but just something to throw out there for people to chew on as you mentioned you know we've got all these devices now that use energy and you know how many batteries are involved in our life I mean (laughs) a lot right so if the if we get if we move away from fossil fuels to more expensive renewable energies and um the cost of running these products increases monthly household expenses to the point where um, lower income people can no longer afford to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, is that going to is that going to just add to this perception of wealth inequality? You know, the idea yeah. that the you know the rich people can afford to run their you know super four K high def super smell vision eighty inch TV. You know, whereas lower income person is stuck with you know the the fifty inch you know just high def TV from six years ago, um, right? <laughs> you know things like that. Um, you know, and, and I don't know. Maybe that's a little absurd, um, but I think right. It's it's something to consider, right? Are the, yeah. You know, is this standard that we have of of the standard of living that we have is you know this good life, the good American life, right? Is the increased energy cost going to push that to a point where we now have fewer people who are able to really um, live that sort of lifestyle? And then, if it, you know, is that going to lead to more discontent? Um, you know, a question to ask. I'm not sure. Um, like I said, it could be absurd, but, you know, you, you never know, right? These things, yeah. over time, right, they kind of have a way of snowballing. Um, but, you know, when you're bringing up the battery, though, that that made me think of something. Uh, Matt Ridley's in The Rational Optimist. Um, he kind of talks about some of the, uh, just kind of generationally or every decade or so, we kind of have a big panic or a big scare about something that's going to happen. Um, it's been a while since I've read the book, so I may not be retelling this completely accurately, but one of the things that he mentioned is back in the 70s, there was this fear that the population explosion on the earth would uh, push us past the point where we could effectively feed everyone, all the people of the earth. Um, because at the time, you know, looking at the statistics, right, we just weren't able to produce enough food to feed everyone or to feed where the earth was projected to go. Well, since then, we have far past 
what that tipping point was. I, I forget what it was, like 4 million or 6 million people, something like that. And it, as he's analyzing this, the point that he brought up is that when, when these folks who are researching this question were looking at, they weren't taking into account advances in technology. They weren't taking into account innovation. So that by the time we, we hit that tipping point, right, we, we were able to produce a lot more food. The yield per acre of our crops was a lot higher. We were able to grow food in areas of the world where we weren't really able to produce a lot of food before. Um, and then he points out again, um, a similar example back in the 80s, like we we're going to hit peak oil by, I don't know, I'm thinking by 2020 or something like that. And yet here we are in 2020, right? We're not really access to oil really isn't a huge concern, right? We've got just plenty of technology. We've got fracking now. We've got all kinds of technologies to get at oil reserves that we weren't able to get at before. Um, and the thing that I think is is kind of important about that is these changes, I don't, I don't know that they were 100% driven by the market, but they were largely driven by the market. Like, I don't remember a lot of huge government initiatives to um, lower the cost of producing oil to lower the cost of producing food. Um, you know, nothing like, you know, the, the government um, program to get us on the moon, right? That was a huge national objective um, yeah. pushed by the government, whereas these things, it was largely private companies in innovation. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned the battery. Um, so we, we don't have this yet. So one question I would ask is, well, is it just a, is, is it a, a limitation in our knowledge right now? Or is it just that there hasn't been enough demand in the market um, for a, a company to come along like Tesla to actually solve this problem, right? To yeah. actually put the money into the research that we need. Um, and if we just wait, right, eventually the market will get there. Mm -hmm. And when it does, right, then we're going to have all these innovative solutions for this battery problem. Which kind of brings me to one of the central questions around like these issues like the Green New Deal is who's better situated to address it, right? Is it a top-down approach from the government down, or is it better to let the market approach a kind of a bottom-up approach? Um, mm -hmm. And I, I can see the arguments on both sides because from what I understand, some people are saying, well, the market by the time the market moves to the point where there's a huge demand for um, these in, for energy conservation, uh, it's going to be too late, right? The market's just not going to be fast enough. So that's why we need government to step in now and start forcing it. Um, but the problem that we run, run into with that is, like Paul said, when the government's involved, right, you start dealing with a lot of businessmen. You're not dealing mm -hmm. with the you need engineers and nerds to address this situation, not businessmen. So if More nerds. Market, yeah. <laughs> so if you let the market address it, right, you're going to pull the nerds uh, and the engineers in. And so the people who are the most well-suited to address it are going to be working on the problem. You're not going to have a bunch of businessmen who are out there just trying to get handouts from the government and just trying to make money. Yeah. Um, you, no, go ahead. Well, and, and what you talked about made me just think about sort of directed versus organic innovation, right? So I, I guess the organic innovation I would think of as market response to an opportunity. And what I see as um, directed uh, innovation, the best one I can come to, actually it does I think come from the government, is something like DARPA, right? Where they have a purpose which is um, and it, I'm sure this is controversial to, to many people, uh, but if, if I took it simplistically, it's, it's to defend and protect the United States. And so they're investing in technologies and exploration of technologies that can help do that. And the Internet is, is probably one of the, the best in modern times, one of the, the best examples of um, the benefit of that, that research. Um, what's interesting about that, is that the incentive is to try and find technologies that are going to protect humans, right? So it's it's a it's kind of a um, it, and I'm painting it that way again, debatable. If you paint it that way, though, it gives an explicit view, and you you ask yourself, is that is that a, a good thing? 
uh, where you're able to say, okay, I, I, I have a direction for the investments. It's going to allow me to get rid of ideas that don't really fit into that uh, requirement um, or that mandate. And therefore, we, we can focus on certain types of technologies. That's, that I think, different from a directed uh, area of innovation, which is more from a political design, right? Which is to say, we're going to solve something that politically is, is something that we believe in, um, which in this case is saying, listen, if we could only solve for the issue of the battery, right? Um, and I, I don't know if I have an answer here, but I guess it's a question for you. So do you see something like DARPA uh, providing value um, from a research perspective and it's government funded? I mean, I don't know all of the uh, the history of DARPA, but I, you know, from everything I've read about it, again, the internet is an example uh, that we're trying to do distributed processing in the case of an attack and, and came up with the core concept. It was, it's since been built into what it was because of the market, not because of governments. Um, although they, they did play a hand in it, uh, for sure. So, um, that versus kind of the, um, the areas of research that are just done by the market. Uh, I guess, what do you think about that? Yeah, that was uh, one thing that I was considering is like maybe is it a situation where if there's no private company that kind of wants to take on the challenge of developing this technology because there's no market for it yet, would it be better to have the government sort of do the initial research, kind of come up with that baseline technology and then turn it over to um, the market to refine and to start Mm -hmm. delivering out to the market? one thing, one question I would ask there, though, is, um, you know, if the government does that, are we going to end up with an inefficient technology? Um, so, like, I, I don't know if you know, but, like, the cell phone technology that we use here in the U.S. is, like, the inferior technology, but we're using it because it was pushed by the government. Um, yeah. And so it just got to the point where we're kind of, a, you know, sunk cost, like, we're, <laughs> we're here, we're yeah. using it, we might as well stick with it. Um, so if, if the government's pushing it, right, you know, again, are we going to have a company um, who's maybe partnering with the government and developing an inferior, an inferior technology that's going to get pushed by the government because of campaign contributions and things like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it, how, how effectively would competing technologies be able to compete with something that is backed by uh, um, the biggest government in the history of the world with, you know, a printing press that can just right. create as much money as it wants. Um, and then what are going to be the long-term impacts? Um, right. So, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know a lot about DARPA, um, but I do know, like, we've gotten some innovations that have come out of it, but it's it seems to me like a lot of those innovations, they've almost sort of been like just side effects of other, other things they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the internet's, you know, that's, that's not really a side effect. Like they, like you said, they wanted a distributed system for communication and they came up with the internet, which is exactly what it is. Um, but I think there's other technologies where they were maybe trying to research like some new weapon and it was like, Oh, you know, we're trying to research this weapon and we came up with the, you know, the, the you know, better household mop accidentally. So yeah, right. we'll, we'll just release that to the market. So, you know, the program, I think, I think it would have to be kind of pretty well defined and targeted to this problem of batteries. Um, mm-hmm. You know, whether you know the driver is to come up with a better battery to power our tanks or a better battery to power, um, you know, commuter cars. I, you know, I don't yeah. know, but you know, I, I, my question would be kind of the alignment there. Yeah, and, yeah, that's and, fair. You know, a, a battery that powers a tank is that really going to be the most efficient battery for powering a, a Ford Rescue right. or something? So, right. Uh, well, yeah, and, and, and you know, as, you're, as you're talking, I mean, I, I think that's it's interesting. I mean, neither you nor I understand the uh, the actual structure of investments done by DARPA. So it's very possible today that DARPA is actually, you know, the article that I read in Popular Mechanic four or five years ago about the researchers in Colorado who were working on the battery problem, it's possible they were receiving grants from DARPA, right? Um, and so there's a... And then there's the question of uh, do, you know, if, if company, and, and they, they talked about in that article how all the companies that were primarily concerned with battery consumption, so things like Samsung, um, Sony, uh, Apple, 
they had their own units that were trying to solve this problem and they you know they were they were they were challenged to do so right because um, everything's based on lithium batteries today uh, which is based on a chemical reaction they want to move into this water-based technology but no one's been able to solve the physical problem of it well a lot of different people are trying apparently right and so it's, it's unclear to me that you know um, the government is going to have somehow a monopoly and a, and a perspective. So you really need to move away from the idea, well, it's always just a lack of money, right? Um, it, it could be timing is, is a huge part of it. We have advances that, that build on other advances. Um, you've got um, just the serendipitous explosion of ideas that happen um, as, as these researchers are working on um, something and, and something uh, doesn't go. They run an experiment. Something doesn't go their way, but it leads them to, to go down a different path that all of a sudden exposes their uh, understanding um, or, or a flaw in their understanding that now turns out to be the key innovation. So you, you don't actually know where some of these these points come from. Uh, the, the 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 knowledge that that comes from it. Certainly, the harnessing of it comes from the market. I think. The examples are overwhelming that way. Um, you know, if I just look at it, we're in 2020, Tesla's rockets going to, to space, uh, being able to, to, to build the rocket that goes up and comes down, uh, being able to provide resources into space at a lower cost. There, that's what's going to take us into the next frontier. It's not the government um, trying to build a whole um, a whole. Uh, you know, fleet of, of airplanes to go into the, to the stratosphere. The, the incentives just aren't there in the right way. So I, I think I agree. I, I, I don't know that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm more open to certain amounts of research happening at the government level. Um, and, and it's a question I've always had is like, you know, and, and I, I think that's what you're saying. Well, the market will eventually get there. Um, now, in some cases, is particularly when it comes to common defense, there's a reason to push that. I, I think there's an argument to push it um, that you don't want your your uh, your enemies to get technology before you do, and maybe the gov- maybe the, the market doesn't care as much about that because they're focused on other um, other areas, right? Of of either consumerism or you know business needs, um, but maybe that is a unique scenario. Uh, and as we look at all the other areas, the market really just is the the, the ultimate. Um, decision maker for the reasons that you know whoever you know you know the number of people that buy it and once you know the number of people that buy it then the market's spoken um, and that, that's what kind of goes in my head as, as we're talking about you know government structured view versus more of a market-based innovation engine right and, um, you know and maybe this space program is kind of a model to follow Maybe it's sort of like a condensed version of that because you know the, the government kind of started us off mm-hmm. the satellites right. in orbit landing a man on the moon and now we do have several um, several private companies using that that knowledge that foundation the, those engineers and researchers from those programs from the space program to now um, try to push the commercial boundaries of space um, yeah you know so maybe that's it um, I I don't know right that's a, it's a really good question. Um, you know, again, the thing that worries me about government being too involved is like, are the government's incentives incentives really aligned with the market's incentives? Um, right. But you know, like I said, I'm maybe just being too cynical. In that <laughs> respect. Um, no, no. I mean, I think one one certain solution is that we just convince the porn industry that it needs these better batteries. It's like, you know, all of our advances in technology, VHS and the internet and all that have kind of been driven by porn. So maybe we somehow it's true. get them involved. I don't know. We, we, we need more porn in the innovation, on the innovation yeah. side. Well, they're, they're very big on the adoption side. I guess the question is, are they, are they, are they they're figuring out interesting ways to adopt it or are they actually creating the innovations right. that, that uh, move us forward, right? right? Well, I guess they kind of gave us an inferior technology in VHS. That's right. I, I keep hearing Betamax is the, the, the better technology, but because of the porn industry, we went to VHS. So, yeah, well, I don't know. <laughs> and actually, you, you bring up a really interesting point. The, the best technology uh, doesn't always win. Right. Right. And, and best is obviously a relative term, but if you look at the performance metrics of a, of a technology, there's often this, this critical path that you go through that allows one to win over 
the other. In the case of VHS, it was it was pornography. I guess it was easier to distribute and record. That that gave it a foothold that Betamax didn't have. Yeah. yeah. And so so I mean, with with that in mind, when when people are telling us a grand narrative, hey, this is the best technology. It's the one you want, and it's coming from politicians. We have to recognize that their their incentive isn't just to say this is the ultimate technology. It's the best, and here's why. They're incentive to create a solution that allows them to maintain power, um, and that's that. That may sound very cynical, but you you're, you do have to ask how many politicians do things so that they can only be in in um, in Washington or you know Brussels um, for one term, so they can accomplish one activity, and they're willing to allow their political career to stop dead um, based on one good decision. And I think the, the answer is it's very few. <laughs> Not many. Yeah. Not many. And that's, you know, accept that for what it is. Don't, you don't have to hate on these people. You just have to realize the incentive structures are there to, for them to maintain a position. And that may mean that they're promoting VHS and not Betamax. So clearly what I'm saying is that all of our po- politicians are porn stars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> or they're sleeping with porn stars, I guess. There, um, there we go. There we um, go. Yeah, and I think... Maybe we're getting too far afield here, but you know, maybe one of the best solutions is to take these decisions out of the government's hands. You know, maybe they they've got power in areas that it's better off to just not let them be involved. And that way, we don't have to worry about these perverse incentives um, mm-hmm. that are driving them to make decisions that may not be um, in the country's or, or in the, the, the Earth's best interest. Um, you know, because. You know, how do we, I think there was a story a couple of years ago where Trump said he didn't care about the debt because he wasn't going to be around to have to deal with it or something like that. <laughs> and and he's wow. certainly, yeah, he's certainly not the first politician, I'm sure, to have said that or at least thought. Right. right? Yeah. So, you know, how much are we sacrificing our future for a short-term win um, yeah. for a politician? And this is one of the issues with complex systems. Um, it's... <laughs> It's so easy to kind of, you know, throw out some vague goal and then um, claim that you achieved it based off of uh, a couple of statistics uh, while completely ignoring all the negatives that are coming out of it. And then when someone points points out one of the negatives to you, right, because it's a complex system, it's really hard to trace that negative back to your policy, right? You mm-hmm. can always try to blame it on something else. Um you increase the minimum wage in an area, right? And you can say, look at all these people that I helped while completely ignoring the increase in unemployment because smaller businesses can't afford to, um, you know, pay the higher wage or ignoring the price increases because these businesses had to raise prices to accommodate the higher minimum wage. Um, and then if someone does point that out to you, you can always say, well, it's the greedy businessmen that raise prices. It's the greedy right. businessmen who don't want to pay people. Right. So um, accountability becomes a big issue and kind of associating the, the, the outcomes with the root cause is difficult. Um, yeah. It, and then, you know, again, you know, going back to this first order, second order thinking, right? it's really easy to say, oh, you know, look at how great my minimum wage increase was. You know, this single mom of two can now afford a car and she can, um, you know, to get back and forth to a better job and she can get training mm-hmm. and things like this. Um but it becomes more difficult to push past that and say, okay, well, you know, what, what, what were the other impacts here? What, what happened? What were, the, what were the other things that happened from this, um, this policy? Um, yeah. And, you know, and then you get a lot of finger pointing. Well, it wasn't my fault. It was his fault. It was her fault. It was that, that agency's fault. Um, I had nothing to do with it. I'm benevolent. Right. These people are evil. Um, so it's, it, it's a difficult it's a difficult thing to analyze, um, and the, the best we can do is just try to look at it, try to grab them, try to grab the most objective facts that we can, and come to our best conclusions possible. Yeah, yeah and what you were, as you're talking, what comes to mind is triangulation, and where there you have you have these people that think, well, I found a study or I found a fact, and it and it confirms. 
and they don't they go they don't go the next step step to say okay here is here's a report so let's just take nuclear energy as an example um, as someone who says well no I think there's a lot of benefits from it um, and that is that's is the way I would I would uh, love to see us move forward well what are some of the challenges to doing that right what are the what are the cases or what what is and what's going to prevent us from being able to achieve that well if if you spend all the time listening to, to nuclear advocates and never look at some of the, the people that are going to critique it and then try and find a synthesis of the of those arguments to figure out which one is is really providing a holistic view you're, you're going to be that that person who's like well nuclear and everything it, there's nothing wrong with it at all which is which is which is not the case right there's there's every single decision has uh, an offset Right? There's an opportunity cost to investing in, in technologies, making a decision, getting up in the morning. It doesn't matter what it is, right? So you need to be exploring the, the opposition. You have an idea, you agree with it, find out what the opposition's ar- argument is and, and explore it. Be able to articulate it. Ask yourself, can I, do I really understand where they're coming from or is my model, um, uh, is my model incomplete? Do I need to go update it? Do I need to gather more information? And, and be open to the idea that you may be wrong, which is really hard. I mean, there's, there's a series of biases that Kahneman talks about, thinking fast and slow. I think, and I was reading about one this morning, where you, you, you feel the correctness in, and you've gathered all this information, you feel correct about what you understand, and then you find a fact that, that doesn't align to your model, and all of a sudden you say, well, do I have to believe it? I, I think Jonathan Hyde mentioned that. Do I actually have to believe this? How credible is it? Right. And instead of saying, okay, well, does this change the model? Maybe this, uh, I'm not black and white thinking, okay, this is a fact, what does it mean, and how should I update my model based on that? Um, that's that's just a good heuristic to, to follow. Yeah, it's, it's really easy to let that come dissonance from seeing coming across a fact that kind of blows your theory blows it up or at least changes it right it's really easy to let that cognitive dissonance push you into justifying throwing that fact out and ignoring it yeah you know underweighting it um yeah that's that's real easy um i don't know paul um i don't know what, what do you think the answer is here do we have an answer well, I think yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, th- this this podcast started with this idea that you're going to hear more narratives, and as those narratives come out, you're going to be uh, you're probably going to feel an urge to either dismiss them or to embrace them, depending on your uh, your political bias. And we talked about that in our origin story, uh, going through and understanding what your values are. And I think the answer is you should. Um, Look at that knee-jerk reaction, that, that, that feeling like, oh, I, 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 I agree or I disagree. Pull back from that and start off with analyzing the premise. Do you understand that? Do you understand um, are, are the qu- right questions being asked? And ask those questions. You know, ask yourself, are, are, are there are enough questions being asked about this big change, um, if I understand what it is? And, and ultimately, there could be another side of it, which is that you say, listen, I've got limited time. I'm gonna I'm gonna put in rational ignorance, and say I, I cannot care about this because here's two or three other things that I care about. And be honest with yourself about that. Um, I think that's a that's a very reasonable place to be. There's only so many hours in a day, and we have other priorities. And there's nothing wrong, uh, from my perspective, to say I cannot engage on that. Um, yeah. Now. There's a cost to that too. Um, I'm very passionate about three different topics. Um, I'm sure we'll cover them on some other podcasts that I think are existential risks to us. Climate change isn't on there. If, if I did believe climate change was, was on there, it'd be very hard to hear someone tell me it's not a big deal. It, it, or, you know, well, it's, it's, it's something that we can just, we'll just deal with it in the future. I'm sure I'd feel very emotional about that. But realize everyone has a different value system and, and remember that when it comes up. So, I guess to answer your question, Scott, I'm not sure we answered it as much as we brought up concepts and ideas that people should think about. How, is that how you feel? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that's good, right? I think that's kind of the point of our podcast when we talked about putting this together is it wasn't to, wasn't to tell people how to think. It was just to try to give them an idea of 
or it wasn't to tell people what to think, I should say. It was to give them a better idea of how to think so they can mm-hmm. come up with their own conclusions. Um, so I think we maybe <laughs> landed right where we wanted to, which was, oh, <laughs> sorry, we don't have an answer. <laughs> we don't have an answer. Yeah. We don't have an answer. Um, well, that, and that's okay. So, um, yes. well, we're about at our hour. Um, I guess in terms of this topic, is there anything else you think you'd want to discuss? No, um, I think we just got it out there. Like you said, you know, just don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, and, and I get it. You know, Paul and I both talked offline a lot about this, um, this sort of culture that we're developing where even asking the questions will get you, <laughs> can get you canceled, so to speak. But um, yeah. you know, just remember that there are like-minded people out there along with you, whether you're liberal, conservative, something else, um, you know, we all value people who aren't afraid to ask questions. Um, yeah. So, you know, just seek us out and, you know, form a community. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, if you're going to do that, you might as well smash the like button, smash the follow button. I don't know what platform you're on, but follow us. We'd love for you to come back, engage with us, um, ask questions, put it, whatever thoughts you have in the comment section. And if there's topics you want us to cover, uh, you'd really like a perspective on, let us know. We'd love to cover them. Uh, this, this conversation is going to continue, uh, covering whatever, whatever is meaningful in the day. So, um, Until next time, um, take care and be well. See you soon.